Mystery, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 26th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Tennessee Claflin. She was born on this day, some year between 1843 and 1846. Tennessee's story is one of those that would be amazing on the stage. Like, I would love to see Lin-Manuel Miranda get a hold of this one. Hers is an atypical rags-to-riches story with a lot of twists and turns and historical firsts. It's basically a dark feminist Disney ride. Now, her life, like a lot of people on this show, was not a purely saintly one, as she did some shady stuff, but she was also the first woman to open a Wall Street brokerage firm, and she was the first woman to start a newspaper in America. So we're going to learn about all the dark and light corners of Tennessee Claflin, and since her and her sister Victoria's lives were so intertwined professionally and personally, this is sort of a dual bio in parts. So Tennessee possibly named in honor of her father's love of Tennessee Congressman James Polk, was the last of 10 kids born to Roxanna and Buck Claflin in rural Ohio. Her childhood was pretty bad. If I had to sum it up, it most closely resembles the book Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. The family was totally dirt poor. All the neighbors described the kids as wild, dirty, and hungry. And actually, only seven out of the 10 kids made it past infancy. Roxana was a religious fanatic. She was illiterate and she was deeply emotionally unstable. Her father, John, had actually objected to her marrying Buck because he was poor. But Buck, who was a con man since childhood, he filled his pockets with counterfeit money one day, jumped in the river, and then appeared at Roxana's house saying that he had been saved from drowning by a miracle. And as he emptied out his pockets of the counterfeit money, which looks way more like real money when it's wet and crumpled, John realized he must have been mistaken about Buck's financial status, and he gave his consent to the marriage. Buck was a snake oil salesman, sometimes described as a one-eyed snake oil salesman, who posed as a doctor, a lawyer, and anything else he could think of to make an easy dollar. Some accounts describe him as a brutally physically and possibly sexually abusive father who beat his kids at random. Adding gravitas to that character sketch was the fact that one of his sons, Malden, ran away at age 13 and was never seen again. Other more sympathetic accounts describe him as a well-meaning huckster who simply was money-hungry and impoverished, but not an abusive brute, but someone who did very often get in trouble with the law. The truth is usually somewhere in between the extremes, so painting an accurate picture of Buck is not something that can be done in a 15-minute podcast. But we can probably come to a mutual conclusion that Buck was just not the most upstanding citizen all the way around. Why Buck is so important to this story, aside from bringing Tennessee into the world, is that he brought his young daughter and her older sister Victoria into his money-making schemes. Buck had his finger in a number of pies, from insurance fraud to snake oil to horse thievery to running a gristmill to unsuccessful gold mining. The guy was always looking to cash in on the next big thing. When Tennessee was 12, mediums and seances were all the rage. A trio of charlatan sisters named the Fox Sisters had helped create this new wave of spiritualism. Society matrons especially were intrigued by the idea of communicating with the dead, and the Fox Sisters had capitalized on that, holding phony seances where one would rap on the wall or make noises to indicate a breakthrough to the other side to enraptured high society suckers. 
Buck heard about this and immediately put Tennessee and Victoria to work as mediums. The family became nomadic at this point, traveling around the Midwest, setting up shop in a town long enough to hold a few seances and psychic demonstrations. Tennessee was working 13 hours a day for a dollar a reading, with her father selling his Miss Tennessee's Magnetio Elixir for $2 a bottle next to her. Buck advertised his daughter as a magical healer whose psychic abilities could cure everything from cold sores to cancer. Once the authorities caught on, though, the family would skip that particular town and keep on the road until they found one far enough away for word to have not yet spread. When they reached Ottawa in 1863, Buck had become so cocky that he was calling himself the king of cancer. He rented an entire hotel, which he filled with patients, and he and Tennessee treated their patients with psychic readings, snake oil, and most damaging, lie applications. Lie burns the skin and patients began to complain. The police raided the hotel hospital and the family was on the road once more. By the time the courts issued nine charges against them, including medical quackery, the family was long gone. Tennessee was actually charged with the death of a cancer patient named Rebecca Howe, but she never went to court. So here's where it gets icky. One of the richest people in the world at that time was Cornelius Vanderbilt, also known as the Commodore. He had built up a shipping and railroad empire that set him cozily atop a fortune that would be today equal to $185 billion. In 1868, his beloved wife, mother of his 13 children and first cousin, Sophia, had died, leaving him lonely and lost. The Commodore was turning more and more to spiritualism in an attempt to contact her. Buck got wind of this and brazenly called upon the Commodore at his Manhattan mansion, assuring him that his very pretty 24-year-old daughter was not only a gifted medium, but she also gave a great healing psychic massage too. Tennessee and her sister Victoria were exactly the lovely young breath of fresh air that the Commodore was craving, and in no time at all, the girls went to work. Victoria was also eager to get in on the act as her first marriage to womanizing alcoholic Dr. Canning Woodhull had fizzled three years before, leaving her with two children, one of which was severely mentally handicapped, supposedly due to a fall out of the window as a baby. She was currently married to Colonel James Blood, who did not come from money, so basically Victoria needed a way to support herself and her children. Victoria held regular seances for the Commodore, while Tennessee focused on magnetic healing and massage. Tennessee's magnetic powers were apparently quite good, as the 24-year-old con artist and the 77-year-old robber baron became lovers. She became his little sparrow, and he was her old goat. Rumors abound that he proposed marriage, doubtful though, as there is no way that Buck would have let his daughter weasel out of becoming a Vanderbilt. Regardless, all this sensual healing opened up the Commodore's heart and his wallet, and when Victoria and Tennessee approached him with a business proposition, he couldn't refuse. Money talks, but Vanderbilt money yells, and pretty soon all of Manhattan was abuzz about the Commodore's newest endeavor, the silent backing of the first ever female-founded Wall Street brokerage firm, Woodhull, Claflin, and Company. At 10 a.m. on February 5th, 1870, the doors opened for the first time. There was a mob of men outside dying of curiosity to know how women could possibly run a business, and they swarmed into the doors of 44 Broad Street. And there stood Victoria and Tenny, as she was calling herself now, with freshly bobbed hair and skirts short enough to show their ankle boots. They were a sensation, and the papers ate it up with a spoon, filling their columns with both flattering articles on the lovely lady bankers and the bewitching brokers, as well as political cartoons showing the sisters as whip-wielding brutes atop a chariot of male broker-faced oxen. 
More attention was, of course, paid to their appearance than their business acumen across the board by the journalists. But at the end of their first six weeks in business, the sisters had made the equivalent of $13 million. The sisters had picked their location very wisely, as the back of it was connected to a women's-only club, which allowed their female patrons to discreetly enter and exit. This was a time when women didn't have their own money, so to be able to quietly invest their funds and create a financial security blanket for themselves was of paramount importance. Consultations only cost $25, which is about $500 today. And ladies from all walks of life, from the cream of society to notable actresses to middle-class housewives to high-class prostitutes and madams, they all flocked to Victoria and Tenny. For most people, after making $13 million in six weeks, you might feel like you could relax a bit or even devote yourself to a life of leisure. But Victoria and Tenny had bigger plans. Now that they had made some legit money, legitimately, the girls set their sights on journalism and politics. As Victoria said, we went onto Wall Street, not particularly because I wanted to be a broker, but because I wanted to plant the flag of women's rebellion in the center of the continent. With a chunk of the proceeds from their brokerage, they founded Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. This was an extremely controversial paper for the time. It advocated the separation of sex from marriage, or free love as they were calling it. It called for an eight-hour workday, fair wages, gender equality, and sex ed for teenagers. Their paper was also the first one in America to print the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. All this didn't sit well with a lot of people, and as their biographer Mira McPherson explained, In arguing that a woman had the right to freedom regarding her own body, to choose her mate, to decide when she wanted sex, and to actually enjoy it, the sisters were so far ahead of the air that they were openly called prostitutes in print. Victoria and Tenney next spoke on behalf of the suffrage movement before the House of Representatives in 1871, becoming the first women to do so. Tenney's argument was that the Constitution guarantees the right to vote to all citizens, which would obviously include any woman born in America. Her speech was very well received, and she became one of the new faces of the women's vote movement, even though the House tabled her suggestion for about 50 years until the passing of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Victoria next decided to run for president. She was technically the first person to do so, even though her age was just below the legal limit of 35, so she was not actually eligible. She toured the country with Tenney at her side, giving impassioned speeches, which were met by equal parts of enthusiasm and jeering. Nevertheless, she could always pack them in. During a speech at Steinway Hall in New York, she was asked about her articles on free love, to which she answered, Yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable, constitutional, and natural right to love who I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please, and with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. There was a collective clutching of pearls in the audience at that, and the next day cartoons of her as a dark angel of death clutching a sign of free love beside a distraught woman with two sick babies and a drunk husband showed up in papers. She was branded Mrs. Satan, and although this was enough for the Commodore to cut all ties with them, even though he had enjoyed the very same privilege with her sister, her campaign was actually gaining momentum. Victoria had tapped into a lot of quiet public sentiment. Men openly visited brothels and took mistresses, and women were not allowed to say boo. But for a woman to say that she too was the master of her body was beyond scandalous. Victoria was backed by the Equal Rights Party, which she and Tenney had founded, the same party that later sponsored Belva Lockwood's bid for presidency, who we learned about two days ago. And because Victoria and Tenney were eons ahead of their peers, Victoria reached out to Frederick Douglass, asking him if he would run for vice president. He declined, and he threw his support behind President Grant. The lack of a running mate and the continuing bad press was letting the air out of her campaign. 
desperate to keep her name in the papers. And if there's anything that we have learned from our current political situation, it's that good or bad press doesn't seem to matter to some people. Victoria cashed in on a juicy piece of gossip that she got from fellow women's rights activist, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton. Gossip sidebar. Most people know who Harriet Beecher Stowe is, right? She's the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. But most people don't know that back then... She had an equally well-known brother, a minister named Henry Beecher. He was super charismatic. He was very popular, especially with the young, attractive female members of his congregation. His approach to the Bible was pretty novel, as he spoke of a loving and forgiving God as opposed to the harsh, authoritarian God of his father's generation. And he imbued his sermons with messages about the evils of slavery, and he advocated for women's rights. To a certain extent, he loathed Victoria and Tennessee's advocation of free love and had written and spoken many times about how their messages were damaging to families and society. This particular stance was a rather odd one for the minister to take since he was currently deeply involved in a passionate affair with Elizabeth Tilton, who was the wife of one of Henry's most loyal followers, Theodore Tilton. Henry had actually been the one who performed the marriage ceremony for Elizabeth and Theodore. So this was like a real special level of hypocrisy. Elizabeth started to feel guilty as the affair continued over years and years, and she confessed to her husband Theodore. Feeling rightfully outraged, her cuckold husband began to vent to other parishioners, and before long, the whole church knew about the affair. Since Henry had spent so much time vilifying Victoria and Tennessee, this was poetic justice on a plate, and Victoria published the whole sordid affair in her newspaper. Instead of getting Henry in trouble, Tennessee and Victoria were charged with obscenity by self-appointed anti-vice vigilante Anthony Comstock. He had a huge grudge against the sisters, and over the next six months, he arrested them eight times. Comstock could never really get anything super tangible to hold them on, and he finally had to stop locking them up on bogus charges. Henry did end up going to trial on adultery charges, but he was found not guilty, and he quickly and quietly moved to Paris after his acquittal. Elizabeth would later reconfess to her affair with Theodore and be kicked out of the church. The sisters were not in their best spot at the moment. Victoria's political campaign had crashed and burned. All their money had been burned in these ventures. Their friends had turned their backs on the now highly socially poisonous duo. Oddly, though, this was the time when the Commodore came back into their lives, although he did it inadvertently. He died. Suddenly, one of the world's biggest fortunes was up for grabs by a myriad of heirs and associates. Not wanting their deceased father's legacy to be sullied by his previous association with the sisters, the Commodore's kids gave the ladies enough money to not only get out of town, but out of the country. Victoria and Tenney crossed the water in 1877, ending up in England. Their lives would end on a much more positive note as they both ended up marrying rich men who kept them in lives of luxury until their deaths. Victoria married her third and final husband, banker John Martin, and Tennessee, who evidently had a thing for wealthy older men, married Sir Francis Cook, first Viscount of Montserrat and the first Cook Baronet. Francis was the son in Cook, Son, and Company, one of England's largest textile merchants. Tennessee was his second wife, as his first wife, Emily, and the mother of his three now-grown children had died the year before. Tennessee, now Lady Cook, would be with him until his death in 1901. Last sidebar. So Francis was an avid art collector, and he obviously had the funds to do so. The year before his death, he bought a painting that he believed was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. When he died, and his heirs auctioned off most of his collection— they mistakenly thought the painting had been done by another Renaissance artist named Giovanni Antonio Boltraffio. 
So when the piece went up for auction by Sotheby's in 1958, it sold for 45 pounds, a little under two grand in today's money. That painting was not done by Giovanni Antonio Boltraffio. That painting was the Salvatore Mundi, one of the lost works of da Vinci, and it sold in 2017 for $450 million, the highest price ever paid for a painting, to Saudi Minister of Culture, Prince Badr bin Abdullah bin Mohammed Al-Farhan. Francis in Tennessee lived a quiet and happy life until his death, after which time Tennessee spent her days out of the public spotlight until her death at age 78 on January 18, 1923. My sources today were Wikipedia, the MCNY blog, and Woodhull Rising. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Tennessee Claflin. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Chief Joe Medicine Crow, the last war chief of the Crow Nation. See you then.